Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So I'm going to read Psalm 115, and here's kind of actually, there's a lot of ways you could summarize it. Um, Psalm 115, it kind of processes what is worship, but it also processes who am I and how those questions are related. So if you ever struggle with who am I, who am I becoming, or how did I get to where I am, Psalm 115 is saying the way we understand ourselves is by looking at what we worship. So we're going to read just 13 verses of it. It's a little bit longer than that, but read 13 verses. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us, and He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You uh, for these words. And as we consider what it means to worship you and how to understand ourselves in light of that. What we need is your Holy Spirit to teach us. So be with us and soften our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So we're going to talk about this idea of worship tonight. And that might be weird for you. Uh, You might not have grown up in any kind of religious context and the idea of worship sounds like a weird religious um, kind of thing that you can't really engage with. If Maybe you did grow up in a religious context and you think worship was fun or you enjoyed it at some points in life, but now it's this really dry experience. But there's probably, we all have a diversity of reactions to just that word or that concept. And what I want to do is just take us through four aspects of it as we consider the Psalms, especially um, because this is really what all of the Psalms are about, is worship. And the first thing I want to say is this, is that worship is fundamental. And here's what I mean. Worship is about being human. And and the psalm begins, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. These are words of worship. And here's what I mean by fundamental. It's this. Um, I'm going to ask for audience participation. It's a little bit scary. Um, What are terms the young people use to describe a great party over the weekend? Lit. Lit. Ratchet. Wait, what was that? Ratchet. Ratchet, like the tool. Like, that is that's an adjective now. Okay. Okay. Huh? Bumping. Wait, bumping. Is there a G in that? Do you pronounce it with the G? Okay. It was bumping. That's like pronouncing gangster with an R. That They're gangster. Um, anyways, we use adjectives all the time, right? Lit. Uh, someone said earlier, turnt. Turnt. Yes, this is a thing. Now, here's the question is, is a person turnt or can an event be turnt or can it be applied to either one? Is it only a person? No, it's only an event. Huh? No, no, no. 
Is it person turned or and or can a party be? All right, we'll we'll have a little Q and A afterwards about that. Clarify those. We're not lit. Lit people are lit. Okay, me right now. An individual. Okay. I don't think not being myself right here now, just rhetorically. Okay. Here's my point before we wander too far. We actually worship all the time. It actually, I would argue, it's the most natural thing you do. No one has ever taught us to do that because actually God made us with an inborn inclination to do it. Worship comes from the old English word, worship. That means to give something its due. So when you describe something positively for the act of actually giving it credit and inviting others into the delight of it, that's worship. You do it, I do it, because all people do it. All the time, it might be the thing you do most often. You give something its due. From the beginning of the Bible, God's purpose of creating reality creating existence, period, this world is to enjoy it. And the enjoyment of something is never complete until you actually express your delight in it, until you praise it. You do this instinctively all the time at concerts, at sporting events, whatever. Woo is a term of worship. Yes, woo. Okay, y'all look at him funny. Yeah, right, everything you spontaneously shout at a great thing, guess what? That is, your, that is you fulfilling God's design for your humanity, which is to receive and delight in awesome things. If you've tasted something great, if you've had an incredible experience, if you've seen something great and not had anyone to tell about it, it's one of the worst feelings in the world. This is why when we're hiking alone in Yosemite Valley, we immediately Instagram it. That is your instinct to worship. What you're doing is saying, this is amazing, I have to tell someone. That's worship. That's praise. And good things are not fully enjoyed until they're shared. And it's a terrible feeling to enjoy something alone, silently. And this is why God invented the idea of pleasure. The whole idea of pleasure was His. The idea of joy He invented. And He constructed humanity, you and I, to experience joy and for joy to find its highest delights, not simply when you're enjoying that thing, but when you express its excellencies and share its delights. That's praise. But here's the thing. That's only the beginning of worship. Worship extends beyond simply the act of praise. That's just the beginning. To glorify God, right? O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, is not simply to say great things about Him. It's actually to orient your whole life toward enjoying His love. What you worship most deeply animates your entire being. It actually is what is driving how you live. It's not simply expressing that something is good. That's the beginning of it. And it's not simply having a warm fuzzy. Sometimes it involves that, and sometimes it doesn't involve an emotional warm fuzzy. But rather, what worship is, the way the Bible views it, is when your emotional life and your mind and your volition, your actions, your how you live, are all engaged in the enjoyment and delight of God and the good things about Him. This is why, in the book of Romans, Paul takes 11 chapters 
to very technically describe the grace of the gospel, the freeness of God's love, His forgiving kindness, His generosity, and His patience. It takes 11 chapters to describe the gospel. And then in chapter 12, there's a turn in the book of Romans. And he says, therefore, all of that being true, he says, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the first 11 chapters, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your act of worship. This is logic, and what he does for the next four chapters in Romans is he goes on to describe the kind of life of someone who has centered themselves on and in God's love. So that means you love people in all kinds of generous ways, that you're forgiving of people, that you're truth-telling, that you're patient, that you seek sexual purity, that you're content. And the list keeps going on and on and on for four showers, for four chapters. And these things are the kind of life that's actually called forth because God's love has gotten into you. And it has filled you. And Paul actually calls all of life worship. Worship is much more than an elevated emotional verbal response to something. That's the beginning of it. Worship is Paul's way of describing your whole life, both your mind, your emotions, and your will, engaged in living toward the thing that has captured you. That's worship. When the psalmist says, give glory to God, he's not saying, make sure God, you give God a footnote for scoring a touchdown. That's not what giving glory to God is. Or make sure you give God a footnote for getting an A on your midterm. That's not what giving glory to God is. It's not simply giving Him credit for a good thing you happen to have worked hard for on your own to get. And a lot of times that's the way we interpret it. He's saying, live for God. Here's my point in saying worship is fundamental. Worship is fundamental to being human. And actually, wherever you are in the spiritual spectrum, we acknowledge this all the time. The language we use around campus in Silicon Valley today in our culture of finding your passion is very telling. Why do we place so much importance on finding something that you can be passionate about? I would wager that the language of finding your passion and the importance of like, I've got to find something that animates my heart in a way that makes me want to work hard and makes me feel alive is actually just our culture's language that we've adopted to reflect our God-designed purpose of centering our hearts on something that makes us feel alive. And this is what's happening. We know that we've got to find, that we're driven by passion, and so we look for it everywhere. What's my passion? What's my passion? I have these conversations with you all the time. What's my passion? I've got to find my passion. But because we attach ourselves and our hearts to finite things in order to feel that passion, we'll actually take right a temporary substitute. What happens is at some point, our passion for that thing fades. At some point, it, it fails. And then the option is look for a new passion. Remember, you used to have a passion. But now it kind of faded, and now we're looking for a new one. So you can either look for a new passion, or you can embrace an insincere passion. That's the other option that we choose. It's like, I know this thing can't really carry the weight of my meaning, but I'm tired of looking, so I'm just going to try to lie to myself and say it's meaningful for me. So we look, but finding your passion is our language of, I need something to worship. Here's another, another language, finding yourself. Finding yourself is really the quest of finding something to love, something worthy of worship. And we set out on that quest, usually because of the things that we had centered our lives on, Stanford, significant other, family, reputation, group of friends, stability, control, those things fell through because they couldn't handle being everything for us. Sometimes we actually even smothered them 
squeezing them so tightly because we're asking them to fill our hearts. And when we lose them or strangle them, we feel on the other side that we don't know who we are anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. We experience deep emotional and psychological displacement because we used to know who we are when we were attached to those things and now we don't. So we have to find ourselves. That's a worship problem. Worship is fundamental. It is the thing that is driving you at all times. It's actually, that would be the biblical word for what does it mean to be human. It is to worship. It's not just fundamental. It's also universal. The psalmist begins by talking about the worship of God and then addresses people who don't worship God, who, who say to the... Uh, who say to the Israelites, where's your God? And the psalmist says, well, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Their idols have mouths but don't speak and eyes don't see. Their idols have ears but they don't hear, noses but they don't smell. Their idols have hands. Their gods do not feel. He's referring to their idols. And the psalmist is here saying, everyone worships something. That there's, the psalmist is really dividing, saying that the world is divided into two types of people. People who worship the Creator and people who worship created things. And when you hear the word idolatry, we normally think uh, that's an ancient practice, that that's little carved statues that people from ages ago, they would worship things, they would have shrines in their house. That's too simplistic. That's how idolatry looked then. But what idols are, anything that you set your heart on. Idolatry is simply the biblical word for centering your life and orienting your life towards something other than God and His love. Now, what this doesn't mean is this doesn't mean that enjoying the good things of this world is bad. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's a very good thing. The first thing we see, with the second thing we see do, uh, God do in Scripture, first He creates, the second thing we do is we see Him enjoy His creation. But the very heart of sin is a love disorder. It's when our loves get uh, disordered or reordered in a wrong fashion. When our loves get out of proportion. This is what I mean. In Romans 1, Paul says sin is when we substitute the worship of God for the worship of created things. It's when in our hearts we replace the gift giver with the gifts that he's given. See, our loves get disordered. It's when what is... It's when this becomes true. What is more important to me is not God Himself, but rather what's central to my life and to my identity and to my heart is the things I can get from Him. Getting the right job, surrounding myself with the right kind of people, losing weight, uh, finding a significant other, having control, all these other things. And we say, that's it. That's life. You can even see this in the life of Christians. Right? When our prayers and our language are more about using God to get circumstances and relationships we don't want, instead of enjoying what He has given in His gifts to us. When a Christian's spiritual dialogue is not about the life and death and resurrection and grace and love of Jesus, but rather about whether or not God is giving you the circumstances you want, that reveals that you even got into Christianity not to get God Himself, but actually use Him as a trinket to get the circumstances you want. You want the gifts, you don't want the giver. And all good things are His gifts to you, but all His good gifts to you, all good things are His gifts to everyone, but all His good gifts to you are sacramental. And what that means is they are tokens of His free and unearned love. That means all the good things you experience from God are not given to you in order to satisfy you, 
but rather to grow you in gratitude and love toward Him. And here's how we know we've done that with the good things that He gives us. If we've taken the good things of this world and replaced God in our heart with those things. Anxiety. You know what has never produced anxiety in the human heart ever? A gift freely given and freely received. Anxiety, gifts don't produce anxiety. When you turn a gift into an idol, it always produces anxiety. Stanford, relationships, exercise, goals, it can be anything. It can be even the moral law of God. It can be the Bible itself. It can be your Christian faith. Anxiety is the product of worshiping something that is not substantial enough to give you meaning. If you worship success, then you've given success the ability to either save you or destroy you. And because success is ultimately something you can't control, no matter how much effort you put in, there will always be anxiety at your side, even if you're remarkably successful. Depression, in many ways, is the inability to find anything worthy of delight and worship. This is why in depression we use language like, I don't feel like there's anything to live for. You may have worshipped many things, but you found them all lacking over and over again, and now you can't find anything to live for. So you have this desire to love and to connect to something that gives you ultimate meaning, but anytime you connect to anything other than the living and true God... We're always anxious, and as soon as we give up, we come depressed. This is the way one writer said it is, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question is not whether or not you will love something as ultimate. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? Because you are what you love. And the psalmist is saying, at the end of the day, we will either worship the created things, or we will worship the Creator. But everyone's going to worship something. Worship is universal. Is the fundamental human experience, and it's universal to everyone. Thirdly, worship is formative. This means whatever you worship is going to shape you. When the psalmist talks about those that created worship things, he says in verse 8, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So when, if you want to answer the question, who am I, or the question, how did I become this version of me, What you love and worship has made this version of you. That's how you answer that question. We all have a projected idealized us that we're trying to convince ourselves and others is us. But when you want to know the real you, the real me, it's answered by what we love and what we worship. What we worship is always shaping us. You've had this experience. Many of you have, right? You come to Stanford for two or three or four years, and you go back home, and you feel different. You know why? Because you're a little bit more like Stanford and a little bit less like home. You've been shaped by your practices here, by connecting yourself deeply to the culture here. Right? You've adopted language and sensibilities and a code of conduct and even dress that are a little more Stanford. CS people in the CS major, right? After two or three years, you know what they are? They're a little more CS people. Right? Greeks, after two or three years in the Greek system, you know what y'all are? Y'all are a little bit more like Greek people. Right? Acapella people, you know what they are after two or three years? They're a little bit more like acapella people. Why? Because we're shaped by what we day in and day out center our life around. 
those are just social institutions that we want acceptance from. They're not bad, but it illustrates something that's deeper. We are shaped by what we love, by what we worship, by what we believe is going to usher the good life in for us. And we are shaped not by big cataclysmic decisions, but the daily small decisions that we make. The path of your life and the shape of your soul is formed by daily small decisions. This is, Peter Thiel gave a um, commencement address last week at, um, I don't know uh, which school he was at, but, huh? Hamilton, that's right. Um, and he, he, he picked on this advice, live each day as if you're your last. And he said the best way to take this advice is to do exactly the opposite. To live each day as if you will live forever. Because the choices that you make today matter. And their consequences grow greater and greater. He gets it. Your daily decisions, A, reveal what you love, and B, knit you to it more and more every day. And none of us wants to admit that our daily life reveals what is most important to us and what is continuing to shape us. We are all treating every single day like a one-off. Right? This is not normally me. I'm not normally this busy. I'm not normally this overcommitted. I'm not normally like this. I just have to do this today, just this one weekend. Just treat this one person this way because this time it's an exception. Just blow this one thing off for this other thing. But tomorrow, next week, next quarter, next year, I'll get back to the things that I'm trying to tell myself are important. And we're really deluded. We're really bad at being honest about what we truly love and what we deeply worship. David Foster Wallace, I've, I've, I've said parts of this quote before, but he says it really succinctly. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Worship power, you end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll never ever, uh, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid or fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving. Uh, he says the real insidious thing is that actually we're really bad at being able to articulate what we truly love and what we deeply worship. You, this is why we talk about motivation and try to incentivize ourselves all the time. Those concepts are nonsense. If you think about the fact that they exist, it's very telling, right? We come up with the idea of motivational speeches and motivational techniques and we come up with the idea of incentivizing ourselves because we actually don't understand our humanity. Tomorrow you will in fact be guided in all of your actions by what you love without fail. If you have to motivate or incentivize yourself to do something else, that's a tacit admission that you wish you loved this thing, but in fact don't, so you actually had to reach for something you truly love and refuse to give it to yourself until you accomplish this goal. What you're really revealing is this thing you don't really care about at all. The fact that motivation and incentivization exist for our own personal lives is telling. 
And we're actually pretty, I mean, in some ways, it's sad that we have to rely on that. Because we're trying to convince ourselves we love something that, in fact, we don't love. The way that you tell what you truly worship is to look at, here, here are other ways to tell, look at who you judge and who are candidates for your friendship and where you're insecure and angry. You worship beauty, you judge overweight people. You worship acceptance, you dismiss outsiders and weird people. You worship relationships, you hate people that have them. You worship success, you gravitate toward important people and you can't see unimportant people, you can't even see them. It just keeps going. Examine who you judge, examine who are candidates for your friendship, and where you're insecure and angry, and there you'll see what has your heart. What we worship drives our behavior. But lastly, worship is salvific. God is always drawing us back to Himself in worship. In verse 1, David is calling us to worship God alone, and he says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. That word, steadfast love, is the Old Testament word for gospel. It's an extremely loaded technical term. It's the word for God's promised blessing. The, the, the psalmist goes on to say, the Lord has remembered us and He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. How does His blessing come? It comes because of His steadfast love, because of His promise, not because you performed. The reason that we are restless until we find our rest in Jesus is that every other thing we worship is constantly telling us to perform to its standard. Perform to its standard and then it will bless you. You get beautiful enough, you get savvy enough, you get social enough, you get powerful enough, you get impactful enough. Some of us are even trying to be spiritual enough and moral enough for God. And underneath it is this deep, angry, judgmental insecurity. There is no rest. We can fake being cool on the surface, but there is no rest in our soul. We are not experiencing the blessedness of God because we are performing, trying to earn His blessing or the blessing of whatever God or vision of the good life you have set your heart on and you will never rest until you rest in the fact that Jesus Jesus has performed for you. He lived the life that we should have lived, and He died the death that we should have died, and it is yours by faith. The psalmist says the opposite of worshiping the things of the world, verse 9, is this, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Trust and worship are integrally related. Because you always trust what you worship, and you always worship what you trust. And it's only when you trust in the steadfast love of God are you going to be full. Trust is not simply being able to explain the gospel rationally. It is taking the words of God and taking the promises of God in the life of Jesus and pressing them deep into your heart, singing them into your heart, letting them confront all of your loves and say, Heart, this is the true God, the one who died for me. I am loved. I am loved. I don't... Look the way I want to look, but I am loved by Jesus. I got to see, but Jesus loves me. I am deep in sin. I've regarded God lightly. I've, I've been disobedient, but Jesus, can you forgive me? And He does, because He loves you. And His love is the only love that is not performance-based. And so it's the only love that can ever give you rest. I want to close with just a couple of key 
components of salvific worship. First component is this, is honesty. The reason we do weekly confession in REF is because our God is a God of grace. Because what happens if you actually told Stanford that you kind of interpreted some of the honor code differently than them on a couple of occasions and not a big deal? Right? What if you told your boyfriend or girlfriend what you looked at on the internet? What if the firm you worked for, you actually told them about the hours you worked or how you fudged or how you stole some of your work? What if you told the cause that you work for how your heart really felt about some of the things every now and then and some of the people there? What if you told your friends the thoughts you had about them? What would happen if we were truly honest in all of the realms in which we relate to people and institutions and things? Our lives would implode. The world couldn't handle it. Because everything else we worship only offers performance-based blessing. That means if and really kind of when you fail their standards, you've got to hide it. You have to hide it. And another reason that we should feel lost and unwhole as people is because we've grown so comfortable with hiding the real us because what we worship can never handle the real us. His promise is that His love is not based on your performance but on His character. And for that very reason, He can and does intend to heal you as a person through the act of confession, through the act of bringing the real hidden you that you can't let the other gods in your life see. Bringing it into the light of the gospel, to the foot of the cross, so He can say, yes, I know. Look to the cross so you can see, I love you and I forgive you. You need to test His grace with deep, scary honesty. Nothing else you worship could handle that honesty. But He intends not just to forgive you, but to heal your divided self. You get to become a whole person for the first time ever. Restore your humanity. You get to feel full and win your heart to Himself with His steadfast love. You want to be full? The gospel of grace allows honesty. Secondly, worship is communal. Notice the language, not to us, but to your name give glory. Israel, trust in the Lord. House of Aaron, house of Israel. He's constantly calling on the community, us together, into worship into lives following after Christ and praising Him. This is what it means. Your heart can't really be recalibrated to the love of God by yourself. You can't do it. God didn't make you able to do it. Paul in Ephesians, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, always describes the Christian life as only possible in a community. C.S. Lewis describes why. He says, it talks about um, friendships with one another. He says, In each of my friends there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles, talking about one of his friends, Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. And far from having more of Ronald... By having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition 
which each of us has of God, for every soul seeing Him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. Hear what he's saying? He's saying, to know one person, you need a group of friends. Because you can only draw out part of their personhood. And when another friend comes in, someone else draws out part of their personhood. And he's saying, if that's true of people, how much more true is it of God? I told Bron and I was going to talk to her, talk about her tonight. And Bronwyn and I have this rapport. But I've loved getting to know Bronwyn because she came to me and said, Britain, and she's absolutely right, Jesus is not a conservative guy from Alabama. <laughs> Y'all heard it here tonight. I'm admitting, I'm confessing, I'm being honest, right, my sin. Jesus is not a conservative guy from Alabama, and she's right. But you know what else? I also get to say, hey, Bronwyn, Jesus is not a liberal woman from Seattle. Amen, right? (laughs) And I'm right. And of course, when we have these kind of conversations, Daniel Galbraith is like, hey, and y'all know he's not American. Do y'all know that? (laughs) And he's right. It's not American. More than even actually interacting with people in this room, you know who can teach you a lot more about Jesus than you would ever imagine is four-year-olds and 12-year-olds and four-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And if the Jesus of your imagination always votes the way you vote and thinks the way you think and endorses the moral decisions that you make, then you don't know God. It's in the community of His people together submitting to His Word being knit together by His grace, not by our personality, that through worship we come more and more to know His love and who He is. So components of worship that begins to transform us, first one is honesty, the second one is community, and then the last one is this, is imagination. We don't act, the way, I hope you get this much, we don't act the way we act because of the things we know. We act the way we act because of what we love. And that means we don't change by getting new information. We change by having our hearts inflamed with a new love. And the way uh, one French novelist wrote it is this, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. The psalmist says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The resurrection of Jesus invites you to dream bigger, to have a bigger imagination. One of the things that, a personal practice that came into my life when I came into ministry is I began reading the last two chapters of Revelation almost daily. Because this is what it says. This is John's vision that God gives him. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth pass away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. When it talks about the new Jerusalem, the holy city, it's, he's just talking about the people of God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
the former things have passed. To be changed and to be full, you have to have a bigger imagination. And actually, something you need to know about how to read the Bible, Christian not, is what the New Testament is specifically. Um, it's not fortune cookies. It's not helpful one-sentence sayings for kind of leading a moral life. The main thing the New Testament is, is historical testimony to things that happened in the first century. That's what the New Testament says about itself. That's what it intends to be. If you read the end of the Gospel of John, he says, I wrote down all the things that I would saw so that you would know what I've seen and believe what I've seen. Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and he said, I wrote this so that you would know what Jesus did. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if the historical event of Jesus dying and rising from the grave didn't happen, don't waste your time with Christianity. The New Testament is primarily historical testimony to the fact that 2,000 years ago, someone conquered death. Why is the resurrection so important? It is because it means that the gospel is not that God kind of vaguely favors you sometimes. It means that He's making everything sad untrue. Up to and including death itself. If Jesus rose again, if that really happened, and you're in Jesus, you'll be with Him in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears. Everything else we do is polishing brass on the Titanic. And that's the tragedy of locking your heart into any other hope other than Jesus. Whatever you build your life on here and now will be taken from you. The reason Christians gather on Sunday is because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday is primarily about remembering the resurrection. That's what it is. It is not going to a weird Christian concert thingy where you get a talk about some helpful advice. That's not what it is. It's the day that we remind each other, Jesus was dead and now He's alive. And all those who are in Him will be with Him. Worship of this God invites you to imagine all things new, all that is sad coming untrue, the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in you being undone. Worship of God invites you to have an imagination for something so good. If you're really encountering the claims of Scripture and what God has said and done, it's so good that you'll start to feel afraid to hope for it. But if Jesus, in history, did in fact rise again and ascend to heaven, worship is the place where God intends to transform you by getting you to imagine and long for the endless immensity of heaven of nearness to Him. Let's pray.